Before we get to our guest, a quick message from our sponsor. Back in June of 2020, I had COVID and I still have long COVID. And one of the symptoms of long COVID is insomnia. I'll wake up at two or three in the morning and can't get back to sleep for two or three, four hours. And it kind of ruins the whole day next day because you don't have any energy. So what did I do? I called Mike Lindell at my pillow and I got the entire sleep system. I have the mattress topper. I have the Giza sheets, which my colleague Christine Dolan says are regal. I have the my pillow, the my pillows themselves, and I have the comforter, which feels like a grandmother's house. It's so warm and cozy. And I have the regal duvet cover on on top of this comforter. So I have the entire sleep system. I literally work all day long. I'm exhausted. I lay down in this sleep system and literally just wake up the next morning. It's amazing how well I sleep. I, I can't get can't wait to get back to it. So what can you do? You can go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CDM and get the best discounts that Mike has to offer right now for the entire sleep system. But don't just get the sleep system. If you're buying household products, make sure to check with Mike Lindell first, promo code CDM to get the best prices. He has over 600 products. Don't go shop at the corporate communists and the big box retailers. Go to Mike first, support the patriotic movement, support free media at CDM, Use promo code CDM at MyPillow.com to get the best discounts and sleep really well going forward. And now let's get to our guest. So today on our global conversations, um, we've invited uh, Mary Holland, who's, who's a good friend of the show, uh, back on. And Mary is the general counsel and president of Children's Health Defense. And Dr. Brian Hooker, who's the chief um, scientific officer for Children's Health Defense. Welcome, Brian and Mary. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, so today, uh, you know, Bobby and um, Bobby Kennedy's and Andy Wakefield's film, Infertility, the Diabolical Agenda, has been released on June 10th. We're running it nonstop. You guys are running it. We're all having discussions about the film. The film, everybody has to see the film. Okay, it's on our website. It's on Children's Health Defense website. And the film is about, is it focuses on the WHO administering tetanus shots in Kenya. And in fact, that they were infertility shots and it was fraud. So let's first talk about the film, the impact of the film, Mary. Let, let's, uh, let's begin with that. So this is a story, Christine, that, that scientists have been aware of and others. Um, we know that for three decades, the World Health Organization, with support from the U.S. Agency for International Development, um, worked on vaccines to cause infertility. And we know that it, one of the ways they did that was taking a tetanus shot and actually sort of mute, changing it so that it would actually cause infertility. It would cause miscarriages and it would cause women not to be able to have a, a pregnancy and carry a pregnancy. And so what we knew is that th this program had been rolled out in Kenya. And so we are incredibly fortunate that filmmakers went and interviewed two of the critical gynecologists who could speak to this campaign and also the laboratory where vials of these tetanus vaccines had been tested. And so this film really answers a question that had not been kind of pinned down. Was the WHO behind this infertility, this surreptitious criminal uh, infertility causing uh, vaccine program? And the answer 
the facts show is yes, the WHO was behind this. So this is especially important, Christine, right now in the context of the discussion of whether the World Health Organization should basically become the fulcrum of a kind of new world order to have the competence to deal with any and every health crisis and pandemic around the world. If this is what they did in Kenya, you know, I think it should give all of us second thoughts about whether we want the World Health Organization to be in charge. And, and it's also in the context of it was for depopulation. Well, I mean, causing infertility to women clearly, uh, you know, causes depopulation. So I, you know, you can certainly say that creating infertility causing vaccines and rolling them out in developing countries absolutely is part of a depopulation agenda of poor people in, in developing countries. Brian, let's talk about this a little further because, I mean, as a scientist, you know, and, and I know as a journalist that this is not the first time I've ever seen it, but this is the first time I've actually seen a film on medical trafficking. Uh, and, and, you know, people who in my, in my orbit know me as somebody who's covered human trafficking and all its different faces for the last 22 years. So I take this as, as, an, as, an, as an example of a film that is absolutely documents the fact that they, that they targeted childbearing women to give them infertility. And that is a definition of medical trafficking. Absolutely. And, and what they did was so heinous. They, they had a series of tetanus shots. I believe it was five tetanus shots that each recipient would receive over, you know, a, a period, time period of months. And they targeted specifically women of childbearing age. And, you know, the excuse was, well, we don't want to get these, we don't want these women to get tetanus. We don't want them to transmit tetanus. And um, so they so they targeted this specific population, and the vaccines were laced with a compound called human uh, chorionic uh, gonadotropin or HCG, and that is the pregnancy hormone. That's a, the hormone that's secreted by women who are pregnant, and it's involved in various stages of the pregnancy. And what it does is it causes miscarriage. And so, you know, there were in the in the film, they interviewed women who, after uh, receiving this series of tetanus vaccines, were uh, having miscarriage after miscarriage over and over again, because essentially what they were doing was training the immune system to attack, to attack the developing embryo and fetus and to, you know, respond to pregnancy by um, attacking this particular pregnancy hormone, human chorionic gonadotropin, and flooding, you know, basically the uh, female reproductive systems with antibodies that would cause miscarriage. Extraordinary. And, and Mary, let's talk about the legal aspect of it. This, uh, this denied informed consent. Right. So informed consent, Christine, is the bedrock of ethical medicine, right? And even after World War II, it was sort of narrowly about people being human subjects. But since World War II, this has expanded. So the, the, the bedrock of ethical medicine is prior free and informed consent to all medical interventions. So here we see the global health agency in the most overt, the most horrific manner, violating that notion. And, and one of the things I point out as a lawyer is 
the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court that was agreed to by most nations in the world in 2008 has defined as a war crime enforced sterilization. That's what this was. These women didn't even know that they were being sterilized, but this was sterilization of women on a mass scale without their knowledge or consent. I mean, this is an atrocious crime. And I think the evidence speaks for itself in the film. And we, and we have to also say the error in which this happened. This is not like during the 1990s. No, I mean, listen, I, I don't think in any era, Christine, it's appropriate to deprive any people, let alone women of color, of their reproductive rights. But I mean, yes, this is happening very recently. This is in the 2000s. And interestingly, one of the points in the film is that an earlier Kenyan government had rejected this program, but a right. later Kenyan government, you know, possibly with some kind of rewards that were offered to certain people in important places, they rolled this out. And, um, you know, you have to watch, you get to watch these government spokespeople, you get to watch these doctors speak about it, you get to watch some Catholic bishops who spoke out about it, you get to hear from the women who suffered this in their own bodies. It's a very, very compelling short film. It's just a half an hour, yet I think it's a half an hour very well spent to see it with your own eyes. That's true. And and Brian, you what, what was your big takeaway from the film? I mean, you knew about the story ahead of time, but I mean, when you when you saw the film, did you did it did it fulfill your uh, expectations? It is. It's thirty minutes that everybody should take out in order to see this diabolical, you know, as as the name says, agenda for for anti, you know, fertility. And and you know, the thing that is so important is that this type of thing, because of the cover up, because of the way that the government, the World Health Organization. Uh, dismissed, you know, the the fact that they found human uh, chorionic gonadotropin in these vaccine vials is is chilling. And you know, it's the type of thing that you look at it and you say, can that happen again? Yes, that can definitely happen again. And these individuals need to be held accountable for you know these crimes against humanity. Let's talk about the fact that just by coincidence, uh, the, the film was released on June 10th. It's now, you know, three days later. And then on June 12th in the New York Times magazine, Sunday New York Times magazine, this story came out. And it's about the history of infertility and targeting, again, uh, Latino and um, African-American women here in the United States. And I mean, it is extraordinary. Brian, you have some history, some knowledge of the history of this, uh, even in California, do you not? Absolutely. You know, you think that this is uh, this is ancient history that, you, you know, this was forced sterilization and eugenics campaigns in the early 1900s. But there are reports of uh, involuntary sterilizations as late as 2010 in the California correctional system. Women who were involuntarily sterilized against their will through the correctional system. And, you know, again, you know, the targeting is 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 so, so heinous. And and when you look at the correctional system, you're also looking at, at a population that is that is slanted towards uh, African-American and Latino women. And so, again, you know, it's the same thing over and over again. You think, no, this can't happen. No, our sensibilities would dictate that, you know, this would not happen. But yet it's happening in 2010 right before our eyes. 
Mary, I was struck by the, I was struck by uh, this story when I read it yesterday, and they and because this came to revelation in the early 1970s when Teddy Kennedy was was head of the committee on Capitol Hill, and he had hearings on it, and he had the two people um, uh, and their their mother uh, at the hearing, and it's an extraordinary because I did not know until I read this story that there was the federal law that allowed this, and even though they got rid of the federal law the state laws were still in place and still are in place in some states in the United States. I mean, what are these people thinking? So it's it's worth pointing out, um, Christine, that the Supreme Court decision, Buck v. Bell, which I want to point out is based on forced vaccination. It's based on Jacobson versus right. Massachusetts of 1905. Buck v. Bell has never been overturned, right? So Buck v. Bell, the Supreme Court decision, which was penned by a noted eugenicist, Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes in the 1920s, he said, um, listen, if the law permits forced vaccination, it surely uh, permits cutting the fallopian tube. And then he says, three generations of imbeciles is enough. So it's actually a really fascinating story. Of course, this young woman was not an imbecile. She had been raped. It was not, you know, mm -hmm. she was not uh, pregnant by her own choice. So, you know, from the very beginning, so much of eugenics is based on lie upon lie upon lie. But we can't forget for a moment that eugenic thinking is really still very much with us. The notion even that everybody should get a compulsory vaccine to save you know, humanity, to save everybody, that is eugenics thinking. That is, we will, we will improve humans through our interventions, either sterilizing people or making them more bionic. And if somebody dies, well, probably you know, it's for the best because they probably were somehow a weaker, lesser human. That is still the same thinking, Christine, behind a compulsory vaccination program, which is very much one of the things we at Children's Health Defense are working on. Well, eugenics is something that people need to get educated about, because when you when you listen to the narratives that come out of Davos uh, and you listen to, and you focus on the fact, <laughs> yes, yes, and you focus on the fact that, in, that, that, that they uh, want to they want to bring AI, artificial intelligence, uh, and chance and transhumanism uh, into the conversation. Transhumanism is it not, Brian? Is transhumanism? I mean, is it? Isn't it like eugenics? It's very similar to eugenics in that you know we're we're looking at the population and looking at improving on you know uh, what what is you know, essentially the, essentially the human species by introducing AI, by introducing genetic modification, you know, by introducing gene therapies that could be messenger RNA or DNA therapies um, that would somehow improve upon what the human species has, you know, uh, achieved already. And you, you know, li you listen to this and it's essentially a recitation of horror in terms of, you know, what could happen uh, what might happen. And then, you know, you look at the carnage associated with that. You look at the carnage of a mass vaccination campaign of a one-size-fits-all vaccination campaign, mm -hmm. and essentially they're culling the herd. And well, you know, if you get culled, if you die from a particular vaccination or a die from a particular gene therapy, oh, well, you've got to crack some eggs to make an omelet. And, you know, we're going to go forward with the, this agenda, regardless of, of, you know, what cold corpses we have to march over.
You know, I, when you I, mention I, the word culling, I, I, I think of all of the times I'd, I've spent in Africa out in the bush with conservationists, you know, and the culling and the justification for culling the herds. And, and it really is stunning because it's, it's somebody else makes the choice. I just want to say that this sort of transhumanist agenda or even the, you know, the Great Reset, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, you have people like Dr. Yuval Harari, who is a, an advisor to Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, saying that, you know, humans are just hackable animals. And, you know, up until now, evolution was just sort of evolution. But now we can have evolution by design. We can do it better. We Homo Deus is the name of his last book. You know, the human God. These people really really do believe that they should have and do have godlike powers and they will do it better. It's a chilling, chilling thought. We've lived through this before. It's very chilling. Well, let's, Mary, let, let's talk about, um, you know, you, you guys at Children's Self-Defense have been involved and Brian, you've been involved too, of, of vaccinations in the past that affect a woman's fertility. Um, who wants to go first? Because I know you, you guys have looked at it all. Brian, you want to take this one? Let's go ahead and have Mary go first. I, I, I think it would be important. And Mary, you know, go ahead and disagree sure. with me if you like, but to talk about the HPV vaccine and the, and the work that you've done in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I Push wrote your book, a, Mary. Push your so book. I co-authored a book. I can show the HPV vaccine on trial, seeking justice for a generation betrayed. I, with two co-authors, we published this book in 2018. And at that time, Christine, in 2018, the human papillomavirus vaccine was the most toxic vaccine ever. There were more reported injuries, and among them were very severe reproductive harms. Of course, there were deaths, there was paralysis, there were neurological injuries. This was modified DNA vaccine, but we also were hearing about reproductive harms. And so even though they had excluded pregnant women in the clinical trials that actually lasted for several years, some women got pregnant, and the pregnancy rate in the Gardasil 9, sort of the new and improved Gardasil vaccine, it was over 27%, Christine. Since 2006, when this vaccine was introduced in the United States, there was a 50% decline by 2018 in teen pregnancies. Now, granted, those were unplanned pregnancies, but a 50% decline is not you know, without a reason. Um, so deeply problematic. And we were getting reports of young women having what was called premature ovarian failure. Basically, these nine, 12 year old girls were going into menopause, being unable ever to bear children going forward. So, so clearly, there were things about that vaccine, which was pushed globally and then pushed to boys as well as girls, uh, and probably had some very ill effects on male fertility too, because it has high levels of aluminum as an adjuvant, um, you know, this vaccine was in many ways kind of a template for the COVID shots um, with this very strong push and clearly having reproductive effects. Um, and, and Brian can certainly speak to the, you know, the, the COVID shot effects that we see in terms of reproduction. Brian, what have you found in the VAERS reporting on the infertility? Well, if you look at the most up-to-date reporting on VAERS, uh, fertility issues by far um, outweigh and are lopsided towards the COVID-19 vaccine. If you look at the entire 32-year history of VAERS, um, excluding the COVID-19 vaccine for reports of fertility issues, 
it's about 1,500 reports. Now, then the COVID rollout came in December of 2020. And since that time, looking exclusively at COVID-19 vaccines lumped together. So this would be the messenger RNA vaccine. This would also be the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And fertility issues have blown up. There have been over 15,000 reports or 90%, you know, close to 95% of all of the reports in the history of VAERS of fertility issues are reserved to the COVID-19 shot. And this isn't just fertility issues. This is uh, issues, uh, you know, with menstrual problems, issues with uh, uh, menorrhea, um, you know, where, where if you look at historically what the VAERS reports were, uh, and what the VAERS reports are, 95 to 97% of all menstrual issues reported are due to the COVID-19 shot. And this is compared to the 31-year history of VAERS prior to the COVID-19 rollout. So VAERS is literally exploding with menstrual issues. And also, if you look at miscarriages uh, and what are, what are qualified as spontaneous abortions, which are uh, miscarriages prior to 20 weeks gestation, 75% of all the VAERS reports of, uh, of uh, spontaneous abortion are due to the COVID-19 vaccine. So again, you know, fertility issues, miscarriages, they're all blowing up because of the COVID-19 shot. Not only that, but I know that when we have um, interviewed the vax injured and, and the majority of the people that we've interviewed are women, when not everybody wants to talk about their, their, their periods, you know, on camera, but I, off camera when I'm during the pre-interviews, I only know of one person, one woman that I've spoken to who has not had some issues since getting the COVID shot. And, and Christine, I just want to point out that, you know, the government and CDC and FDA were very quick to call this disinformation when people mm -hmm. were starting to report this. And, you know, now they're acknowledging, yes, there are some, you know, impact on menstruation and on women's periods. And there's now a little bit of research, but, you know, this is this is more than a year later. This is well after the fact. And people were pilloried right initially when they said, yes, I'm having fertility. I'm having menstrual impacts. Mm -hmm. You know, elderly women starting to have their periods, young girls like two years old having bleeding. Very, very serious, serious, bizarre, unfamiliar side effects. Do you guys think that that um, this issue is going to come forward and that more people are going to start talking about it with the um, release of this film? Do you have expectations of that? I would certainly hope so. I know that there there is more information in the open literature that there just is starting to be a tipping point. For such a long time, you know, the the CDC, the FDA, the National Institutes of Health were doing these sort of studies that were set up to succeed and show that, oh, nothing to see here. You know, the first study that the CDC came out with um, uh, which was uh, authored by Tom Shika uh, Kabura, um, who is one of the heads of the uh, vaccine adverse events in terms of the COVID-19 rollout, instead of looking at a nine-month or a 10-month gestational uh, uh, period for pregnancy, their duration of their study was three months. 
And so, you know, last I checked, pregnancy mm. was like nine or 10 months. And mm. now we've got a three-month study saying that, oh, you know, oh, well, the w rates of miscarriages, the rates of problems are, are, are nil, even though they didn't look at full-term pregnancies. And uh, they rolled out another study by Morrow et al. that was based on VAERS. And, you know, they, they had in their results section a recitation of horror regarding uh, women losing their pregnancies, uh, you know, uh, uh, neonatal deaths, things like that. But yet their conclusion was nothing to see here. Let's just go full speed with a, with a COVID-19 shot. But I think that the infertility movie and also, you know, some of the publications, I've had a publication recently in the Gazette of Medical Sciences regarding an issue called decidual cast shedding, where the entire uterine lining sloughs out Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, in just one large piece. And we're seeing many, many reports of that where historically that was never seen. It was very, very rarely seen before the COVID-19 era. But now, you know, in a survey of 6,000 surveillance, there have been 292 cases of decidual cash shedding. Wow. Wow. Where can they, people find your article? Brian. Um, if you go, if you Google the Gazette of Medical Sciences, it will pop up directly. And then you look under the tab that's public health, then our, our paper will pop up directly on that. And, and it is, it's very, very compelling. Uh, this is um, a, a slice of women who were also, who were vaccinated, as well as those women who were in close contact of individuals who were vaccinated with the mRNA vaccine. And they and their uterus is sh uh, shredded as well. Uh, yes, yeah, there was uterine shedding in those that were in close contact, as well as those who were vaccinated. Wow! All right, so we because we all had we had anecdotal stories about that about a year ago, but now now this study has. When was this published? Uh, this was published in April of this year. All right. Um, let's you know I go in for the juggler vein. Let's Mary. Let's talk about. Who are the companies that that manufacture and sell and have the patent on these type of drugs? The one for um, that you just talked about, and then I mean, yeah, we well, need to start talking about sure. which companies because these sure. people need to be exposed. If they can't be held accountable, they need well, to be exposed absolutely. by names. Well, so for the COVID shots, I think Brian can speak to this, but it's all of them, right? So it's Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, now you know the new Novavax. Well, we I guess we don't know yet about that one, but we can surmise. But all of the major drug companies that are producing the COVID shots, for the HPV vaccines, it's Merck and GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and one point I want to make, um, Christine, is really until relatively recently, you know, the 2000s, pregnant women would always be advised, you know, don't eat fish, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke, don't take vaccines, don't do anything that might, you know, cause a problem for your fetus. And here we have so-called public health officials telling pregnant women to take COVID shots when there's never been research done or virtually no research done on this. I mean, it's shocking. It's just from a common sense standpoint, it's absolutely shocking. It's like, don't eat tuna fish, but go get a COVID shot. I mean, it's insane. And this is where we are right now. You know, I recently, there was a study that just came out last week and it was a study talking about, um, uh, COVID disease long haulers is what we'll call them. Not the vax injured long haulers, but the COVID disease long haulers. And then I did a, a deep dive on some of the research and I discovered that $1 billion, 1 billion, that's not, there's no, you know, the, it, with a B, 
uh, in February of 2021 was assigned uh, to this study from NIH. And the juxtaposition of not having these vaccine injured acknowledged, officially studied, and they have assigned $1 billion in the Biden administration for st studying COVID disease long haulers. Not that they shouldn't be studied. I, I don't have a, I think everybody should be studied because this is such a disaster. Brian, let's talk about the lack of ethics here. How, how can they do these studies of the long, the COVID disease long haulers, but not the vaccine injured long haulers? Really? How does that work in the medical field? It, it is just it, it is just horrible what they're doing and and COVID disease long haulers that's a new market and mm -hmm. so you know you see the the money following where the market opportunities are you know there aren't market opportunities in vaccine injury vaccine injury is a liability that will that will um, cause vaccination rates to decline and that will cause revenues to decline and that will cause vaccines to sit on the shelf and i do also want to point out that the moderna vaccine is actually the patent on the moderna vaccine is co-assigned uh, to the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, where Anthony Fauci resides and, and is employed. So, you know, there's there's a government uh, entity that's taking a cut of these particular vaccines and also the same government entity that is shepherding and storting vaccine injury and quietly just sweeping things under the rug. So, you know, the incestuous ties between industry and between the federal government are myriad. And, you know, we we have such a lopsided agenda. Yeah, you know, if if there's a patented drug that's available for long haulers, let's find that patented drug so we can make more money. But quietly, we will sweep under the rug and we will marginalize and we will penalize those who have been injured by the vaccines. Right. And they can't they can't really recognize the vaccine injured because it will cause a vax hesitancy, even though they could use it as a market if they had, but then they'd have to admit that there were vascular and neurological issues, which to date, they have not officially recognized. And Mary, I, mean, I think it's all about keeping the narrative, right? Narrative is key. And the narrative is they're safe and effective, they work. And oh, you know, COVID was very, very, very serious. So everything that you're saying not only makes money, as Brian points out, but it preserves this narrative, which is a false narrative, but it's the narrative that's been pushed since day one. Let's talk about the, the Pfizer uh, document dumps. I, I, I love it every month, you know, in terms of uh, infertility and the warnings and everything. And I think I forget what month it was, might have been March, where uh, in the, the court ordered Pfizer document dumps, they had over 1,200 adverse effects, which included mis some infertility and miscarriages. So, Brian, you want to take that one? Yeah, um, that was one of the earlier Pfizer data dumps was actually uh, 1,223 deaths that were reported directly to Pfizer. This was within three months of the rollout of the Pfizer vaccine. You've got to remember that when the swine flu debacle happened in uh, 1976, there were just 25 deaths before they pulled the swine flu vaccine directly off of the market. And now we're, you know, we're orders of magnitude greater than that. Can I point out though that yes. Brian, at that time, there was no liability shield. And that's the huge difference. Back in swine flu, the government actually had potential liability. And then they created this kind of tort 
reform entity so that now they have no real, there's no feedback loop that they feel like they have to do and there's no financial penalty. And that's the key difference between swine flu back in the seventies and now. So when the, when, when the, this story that's in the New York times and it's, it is about the sixties. Okay. And it talks about that the federal government approved these programs. They were involved with, you know, executing these programs on the federal level and they were allowed on the state level. Who are these people, Mary, that think it's okay to approve a policy where you're going to make people infertile? Christina, I, I think you have to recognize there's a long history of this, right? There's a and really it's, long it's history. It's a really, the, just, a really yeah. long history. And I think in the vaccine context, and Brian can speak to this, you know, I think they have plausible deniability. I actually don't think that they probably, I think the uh, the tetanus HCG vaccine was absolutely deliberate. There's no question about it. 10, 10, three decades, 30 years to create those. HPV and COVID, I'll bet you that the scientists and the pharmaceutical companies, they kind of skate over this whole issue. They don't do the tests on mutagenicity. They don't do the tests on reproductive harms. They, they rush it out. And so they have plausible deniability. They would say, ah, we don't know about any harms to the reproductive cycle. I think it's so it's hard to say that it's intentional with the H the part of what's so important about the, the film about Kenya is there's no question that it was intentional. The schedule was intentional and you learn even it, there's no real question about it in Kenyan here. I think who is pardon me they for saying they didn't know which, which is unsatisfying, but I think that's what is going to be. That's what's said about HPV and about COVID. Who was the who was the uh, pharmaceutical company for the for the Kenyan tetanus shot? Well, it's very interesting. The Serum Institute is the biggest vaccine manufacturer in the world. It's in India, and mm -hmm. they were the manufacturer of the the forward brand. But you'll see in the film that actually some of the vials were relabeled, and that was produced by a second company called Biologic something that I actually don't know, Brian. I don't know if you know that company. I, I don't know that company, but you know I do want to. I want to comment specifically about the messenger RNA vaccines because this is a gene therapy, and you know intentionally FDA did not call it a gene therapy. They did not approve it as a gene therapy, and so you know the toxicology, the insertional studies, the um, uh, the reproductive harm studies, the teratogenicity studies, the carcinogenicity studies were not done. They they fumbled through some animal trials and said, hey, looks like no reproductive harm here. Uh, never were a able to test this in clinical trials regarding reproductive toxicity, and they rolled it out within, you know, three, four months of initiating these particular clinical trials. And it's heinous that they would do that and they would take a genetic therapy that could cause some extreme harm, especially when you look at reproductive toxicity. And, you know, yet they cut the corners, called it a vaccine instead of a genetic therapy, you know, which it is a genetic therapy, and were able to introduce it to the public without all this testing. So, Mary, th th this is the investigative journalist in me. Had it, had they, they redefined vaccinations. They included gene therapy in the in into the and so because they did that, Brian. If I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, that allowed them to then not do what they normally would have had to test to get it on the market if it had been called a gene therapy. Do, am I hearing that correctly, Brian? 
Absolutely correct. The, okay, the, so so Mary, my question to you is: the fact that they intentionally did that, does that prove intent to for fraud well, in a legal so, sense? Certainly, it, it, there's certainly a whiff of fraud, Christine, and many of us are working on fraud for sure. Fraud being an intentional misrepresentation. Remember, the definition of vaccine was changed shortly before this happened. And as mm -hmm. Brian says, had they tried to get this approved as a gene therapy, it would have been far more rigorous thresholds they'd have to meet. And don't forget, this is not an approved vaccine. This is merely authorized as an emergency use authorization product. The FDA has actually not, although the marketing is it safe and effective, the, the legal reality is this is not known to be effective. They say that it is safe and they say that because it is experimental, everybody has a right to say yes or no. So they, they're playing all sides of this, right? They're trying to push it out. At the same time, they have the least possible legal liability conceivable. This is under the, these are issued under the 2005 PrEP Act, which basically says nobody's responsible, literally, nobody's responsible. Not a single person for the million, 1.2 million adverse events that have been reported to VAERS, Christine, not a single person in the United States has yet been paid anything for compensation. Not a single person yet. So this was just, you know, and I think, I think that the history shows that, you know, preparations for something like a COVID outbreak were long in the works and they had given a lot of thought to what were the laws and we would have to bring this out as emergency use authorization. We'd have to make sure that they're under the EUA law, Christine, you can't have a licensed, approved, available alternative, which explains why ivermectin and why hydroxychloroquine had to be suppressed so vehemently. So I think we see an awful lot of evidence of fraud. I, I don't think there's any question about that. But proving it in a courtroom is, you know, what many of us are working on. And certainly the documents that uh, are now being dumped that Pfizer gave to the FDA are very helpful. Absolutely. And we can't we cannot leave the show. We need to talk about what the FDA is trying to do in, in terms of focusing on children that are, you know, six months to uh, five years of age. Um, Brian, take it away, because it is I mean, this is this is where they're coming down to the wire this week. This is absolutely wrong. You know what, what they're doing. The the Verbeck committee is meeting on uh, June 14th to look at the Moderna vaccines. June 15th to look at the Pfizer vaccines. I've been through the clinical data, uh, the efficacy data for uh, you know the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine for this age group is laughable. You know it it basically shows a, a the the FDA set a threshold of 50 uh, percent efficacy for these vaccines. They fall below the 50 percent efficacy. So FDA did away with that, and they talked about immunobridging, which means are the you know are children actually producing antibodies uh, to you know the the therapeutic that they're administering? So you know are, is there an antibody response? Never mind whether it's you know a robust re response for the strains of COVID that are actually going around. But, and, and this is all wholly unnecessary. When you look at this population of children, when you look at children in general, um, about 90, or I'm sorry, 75% are already seropositive 
that they have been exposed to COVID-19. They're actively producing antibodies to the circulating strains of COVID-19. And, you know, all we're doing is we're taking children, we're putting them in harm's way. There was a case of myocarditis in the Moderna trial, but they said, oh, well, the patient recovered from myocarditis, mm. so we don't have to call it myocarditis. And they summarily excluded it from the clinical trial. There were children this, having was seizures. This, was this a baby? Was this, a uh, this this was actually a, this was an adolescent male that had it, and you would expect that. You would expect mm -hmm. that. And remember, Moderna has not been approved for emergency use authorization for teenagers yet, so their clinical trial did include teenagers. Uh, but you know, the clinical trial itself, when they tested babies, you, you know, infants that were from six months of age to two years of age. They looked at only uh, 1,900 individuals getting the vaccine and 500 controls. And so you would not pick up a safety signal. And this was by design. They did not want, you know, you you don't find what you're not looking for. And so they they trimmed down the, uh, the numbers in the clinical trials so they would not see a safety signal. But, you know, I really, really fear the consequences when uh, you know, if, if and when these vaccines are approved for infants down to six months of age. Can I can I add to that, Christine? What I'm so fearful of is that the CDC has already said, oh, no problem. You can co-administer the COVID shots with anything else. No science. Zero science. None. Zero. And so babies, you know, <laughs> trepidatious parents take their babies at six months, at nine months, at 12 months to go to the pediatrician's office. And I think pediatricians who don't do their own homework, who just follow the AAP and the CDC, they'll say, oh, the CDC says we can just co-administer this. And so a baby's going to get MMR. Baby's going to get a COVID shot with that. A baby's going to get a DPT, a flu, a polio, and a COVID shot. And Christine, babies are going to die. I mean, what we're going to see with this rollout is babies are going to die. That's just the sad, awful truth. And, and so we've got to say that in advance. Babies are going to die when pediatricians start co-administering COVID shots with all the other battery of vaccines that these poor infants are getting today. Let's let's share, you know, if they if the babies don't die, but the babies are injured and what that does, what that does to the families, Mary? Oh, I mean, you know, both Brian and I are parents of, of severely injured young adults um, and it changes everything, changes everything about your life, it changes everything about the, the injured individual's life, um, everything, right? Everything, health, education, opportunities, family relationships, friendships, it changes absolutely everything. And this could bankrupt the government in terms of the, the amount of injuries now, they you know there there is a liability shield, but but when you look at the the medical issues, you know it, it's it's beyond you know developmental issues. It's it's beyond you know developmental delays. But the medical issues, these are going to be children who are medically challenged and will re need to receive constant medical care for the rest of their lives. This Christine, is what vaccine injury we, is. We just 
published an article yesterday about, you know, Creutzfeldt-Jakob um, disease. We're seeing dementia in young people from these shots. We're seeing, you know, heart attacks. We're seeing neurological harms. We're seeing reproductive harms. I mean, Brian's right. It, it may well be that the babies that, you know, die may be, you know, spared what is going to be potentially really, really horrific medical effects. We, we want desperately to, to not have this happen, Christina. We have, if you go to Children's Health Defense org you click on take action and you'll send an email immediately to all the members of this fda expert committee and then everybody else the president the vice president your senators your congressperson and your state representatives we've got to get the word out this is insanity it's just i actually am going to read briefly bobby put in uh the he he made a statement he said now they've departed from common sense and into naked cruelty and barbarism by recommending an unapproved experimental zero liability and high risk medical intervention for an illness that poses zero statistical danger to that age group, the White House has made itself the enemy of America's children. I, I just think that's true. I mean, this is Absolutely. really this unacceptable. Is, this is medical trafficking. This is unethical. This is this is criminal. Really, this is criminal, Christine. It really is targeting infants for something that they absolutely don't need that we know can cause severe injury and death. This is just wrong. Well, it's, you know, and for the audience who doesn't understand <clears throat> human trafficking, the, the very definition of it legally is if you have a human being who's defrauded, coerced, or forced for anything, doesn't matter whether it's labor, sex, you name it, or anything in medical, that is considered medical trafficking. You know, some people, because in, in this case, in this story where they actually uh, targeted <clears throat> women who were black and women who were Latinos, that and, and for them, you know, genocide doesn't always have to be the fact that you are dead. Right. It can be that you are used for medical experiments. And <clears throat> in this case, the fact that they're doing that, they're very close to, very close to crossing that line into genocide if they don't take this stuff Well, off. you know, Naomi Wolf is, is a commentator on the Pfizer documents, and she has already come out and said this is genocide. And there are other very important people who are looking at this. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, I want to point out though, Christine, one of the things, it's very hard for normal people, it's very hard for me to take in this kind of evil. It, it's very hard to conceptualize that people could be this evil. And this is a different kind of genocide, right? What we've seen in the past is genocide of a particular racial group or genocide of a particular religious group or, you know, genocide in a war of the enemy. This is kind of indiscriminate, right? It's like people of all colors, people of all ages, but for sure, it's always targeting the most vulnerable, right? It's the people who are immune compromised. It's the elderly, it's the babies. And this is where the greatest harm is gonna show up. Well, I'm not, I'm not where Naomi is in terms of the genocide yet, but I can tell you definitively, as somebody who has looked at cases all over the world for 22 years, specifically in human trafficking, this is without a doubt, and I said this in 2020 when I first talked to Bobby. I said, this is medical trafficking. Absolutely is medical trafficking. Well, you are lying, they're lying yes. to people, Absolutely. they're defrauding people, they're forcing people to take something that puts them at harm for profit. And all you need is human beings being defrauded, lied to, forced, or coerced for profit. And it doesn't matter whether it's labor, sex, or medicine. 
That's the definition of human trafficking at the UN. And that's what, what I think is scary because the UN has always come out against human trafficking, yet their agency, WHO, which comes under the UN, is now complicit in it by going along and trying to get the health sovereignty over on the other side underneath the director general of the of the WHO for all and this is this world. is just heinous we sit with these individuals who have been vaccine injured you know i um uh Maddie DeGuerre, who was mm -hmm. a part of the original Pfizer clinical trial for adolescents um uh Brian uh Dresden who was a part of the AstraZeneca trial you know when they try to post on social media they're deplatformed they're being absolutely silenced. They can't even tell their stories, you know, regarding vaccine injury. They can't even hook up with other individuals who are vaccine injured. They're being completely suppressed and, you know, yet they're suffering. I mean, it's people that Brian, are paralyzed. Brian, well, hold on for a second. Bree yes. Bree's got a whole group on, on social media. You no, know, she was taken down. She she basically, she's she's tenacious. She's playing whack-a-mole. So they'll whack her one in one platform. She'll find another platform. They'll whack her in that platform. But, you know, she's had instances where, you know, she's had vaccine injured friends who are on the brink of suicide, who all of a sudden she could no longer contact with because she was deplatformed on social media. And, and in one instance, the young woman did commit suicide because she didn't know where to turn. She was paralyzed. She had kids. Um, you know, she could not function and there was no remuneration and, and absolutely no care, just completely discarded by the federal government. Yeah, it, it's amazing. The commodification is is pretty stunning at, at, at this level. I think that's what's hard for people to understand. It is it is uh, beyond. I mean, th this is worse than any human trafficking case I've ever ever investigated in my well, life. Well, this is that's being perpetrated by the most powerful players in the world: countries, corporations, um, individuals. I mean, this is on a scale of of a cabal that we've never seen before. Right. And so returning back to this is the reason why people need to watch this film. Yes. Uh, infertility, diabolical agenda. It's a real story. It, it's real medical trafficking. It was it happened in Kenya, but it correlates to this story that just came out in The New York Times, OK, which is recently uh, and, it, and it has to do with the policy and the rules and the regulations that allowed that to go on in the United States. The fact that this was even legal is just beyond comprehension to me, but it was. Um, and it wasn't, you know, back in the 1800s, we're talking about in the 1960s, but also now that we know about other cases, you know, in the last uh, decade uh, here in the United States. So th this is all very serious. People need to watch this film, wrap their brains around it and wrap their brains around the WHO because Mary, you'll have the last word on this. Explain what it is that's happening with the WHO legally, what they're trying to do. Well, uh, at the, you know, at the behest of the United States, the United States is at the forefront of trying to create a new um, international agreement uh, where the World Health Organization becomes the watchword, but also the enforcer for all kind of pandemic preparedness, even over and above the sovereignty of a country that has an alleged outbreak. So they're trying to sign a treaty by August 2024, literally this week, there will be another town hall 
good sign. Um, there's also parallel international health regulations and the amendments that the US had proposed largely fell flat on their face. Most countries in Africa rejected them and countries around the world rejected those amendments to the international health regulations. But this train is still moving forward. So it's very, very important that the global public start to understand that the World Health Organization is not serving our interests, the global public. They're serving the interests of the billionaire class, which seems to include, in some cases, a depopulation agenda. And Brian, you want to add to that? Uh, absolutely. It's, it, you know, this, this train has started, it needs to be stopped. Um, you know, again, the the uh, incestuous relationship between, you know, the world's billionaires and the World Health Organization where they can just, you know, by fiat declare a pandemic at any particular point in time and basically shut down nations, shut down the world's economies. That is what they're trying to do. And so this must be stopped. Yes. Mary Howland, Brian Hooker, thank you very much for your time. And let's just pray for those kids because yes. it's it, in the families. All right. Thank, Thank you. you.